0: Welcome Welcome to to Access Granted, Granted, the stories of of UCL's most inspiring inspiring students. Students.
1: Get ready to embark on a journey filled with triumphs, challenges, and everything in between. We're about to dive into the extraordinary lives of our incredible guests, who are breaking barriers, defying expectations, and leaving the mark on the world. But hey, this isn't your average storytelling podcast.
0: We're about to infuse some wit, playfulness,
1: And a dash of the unexpected into each each episode. So sit back, adjust your headphones, and get ready to be inspired and moved.
0: Your Your access access is is now now granted. Access granted. I am Yu Xin. I'm your host today, and I am a final year international student in statistics at UCL.
1: Hi, I'm Jitong. I'm an upcoming final year BSc Anthropology student here at UCL.
0: Today we are so honored to have Beth here with us as our very first guest, who will share with us her journey through higher education as a disabled and neurodivergent student, and a true advocate for change. So, Beth, could you briefly introduce yourself to our audience?
2: Yeah, of course. Cool. So, hi everyone. Uh, my name's Beth. I'm. Uh, in my first and final year of my Master's of Arts and Science in Creative Health um, here at UCL. Um, And as everyone has been saying, I am a disabled student, Um, I'm autistic, I also have anxiety, and I'm also a trauma survivor as well. Um, So I'm sure we're probably going to touch on bits of this um, kind of going through this podcast. Um, But yeah, I think that's just a little bit about me and what I'm doing at UCL at the moment.
1: Thank you so much, Beth. So in our previous communication, you mentioned that you've been facing some mental health challenges. So could you maybe share some of the challenges um, you've encountered?
2: Yeah, of course. Um, So my mental health struggles have been something that I've always, well, I've not always been very open about them. They kind of started back when I was 16 and I was in college um, and progressively got worse as kind of my education experience got on. By the time I got to my BA, which I did with the Royal Central School of Speech and Drama, um, I was very depressed. I was having panic attacks fairly frequently. Um, At the time, I didn't know that I was autistic. I've only found that out in the last, like, two years. And so not knowing that has also had, like, a really big impact on my experience of the world because I didn't realise that I had sensory difficulties. I didn't realise that there were other reasons going on as to... So why maybe I struggled with like eating food and it was like not because of like I had anything to do with body issues like people always talk about with eating disorders and stuff. It was just because I didn't like the texture and the taste and the smell of some food and I didn't know what it was. So I I just thought it was it was anxiety because that that's what the closest thing that I could find to it kind of was. And yeah, I ended up in hospital back in... 2020 I think after a couple of suicide attempts then kind of realized that I really needed to get some help and my therapy journey has kind of continued through the final year of my BA into the course that I'm doing with UCL and I've learned um ironically more about myself during the course at UCL than I think I'd ever learn um so like my mental health at the moment is a lot better than it has been yeah,
1: that's good to hear that you're better right now. And I think it's um, it's really good that through your course that you kind of delve into your own personality.
0: I would say it's truly moving that you got to share it with us, Beth. Well, I guess that I have walked in your shoes before. I used to attempt suicide for more than a couple of times. And I'm totally aware that I'm still struggling, but I feel that's probably the same for all of us.
1: And, um, I think considering the situation you mentioned above, what kind of support have you received from UCL and how would you say about them?
2: My teaching team, this is, this is the saving grace of UCL is my teaching team on the mask course have, oh my goodness. They are just the most incredible people I have ever met in my life. They made the teaching environment at UCL for me so safe. Like the pair of them have just from the moment they met me had never once made me feel bad for needing to ask extra questions and clarify things. Cause I'm autistic. I take things very literally sometimes. So I'm quite often like, hi, what did you mean when you said this? I don't really understand that. And when I opened up to them about the trauma that I had experienced at other universities because they'd found me mid-trauma-based panic attacky, flashbacky thing, they were so amazing. Like that I vividly remember they sat with me on the floor, the pair of them offering me cups of tea and coffee and water and biscuits and just sat next to me and went, It's okay. You're safe. We're here, we're not gonna leave you, like you're not alone. And I know that if it wasn't for these two angels of human beings that I would likely have not stayed and completed my master's course. They enabled me to continue to kind of learn about and like my own mental health and you know I now I crochet in class I've made we made a little uh, well-being mascot so I made a little bear in class and my friends looked at it and well we need a well-being mascot let's name him Max and let's like take him on adventures and so now my teaching team have got this little bear. He's in Italy with them at the moment. And I've seen so many pictures with them tagging me on Twitter being like, look at Max, he's in Italy. He's doing this, this, and this. Oh, um, and yeah, I feel like their support that they've given me as as a, as a teaching duo has, has been fundamental to me just learning that I'm okay as I am and that my mental health kind of doesn't have to define me, and that I don't need to live my life constantly in fear of people finding out that I have panic attacks or i a trauma survivor or anything
3: else. From
0: what we were talking about Beth, it must have taken you a huge amount of work to develop such an effective coping mechanism. Do you have any other strategies that you might find useful no matter whether you find this on your own or from external sources
2: oh gosh yeah i have quite a lot um i know that this is a podcast and so people aren't going to be able to see but i have headphones that i wear all the time um that are sort of noise cancelling so i wear those anytime i go out the house or at the very least i have them with me because I swear I am allergic to the sound of sirens. I also, as I very briefly mentioned, I crochet. Um, I've been crocheting since I was eight. And I've kind of always assumed it was just a hobby and there wasn't anything more to it. And I'm part of an autistic support group we were discussing our intense interests and the things that we do for our own like mental health and well-being. And I was sat there and I was like, I don't really know what my intense interest is. I was like, maybe it's crochet, but I feel like that doesn't fit. And one of my friends in that group turned to me and she was like, it's not, it's not your intense interest, it's your way of stimming. And I was like, huh, I never really thought of that before because when you look at the NHS definition of what a neurodiverse stim is, they tend to say that it's something, it's like a repetitive soothing action um, that can, that is like aiming to reduce either like sensory overload, anxiety, you know, they give examples like, you know, jumping up and down or swaying or head bobbing, that kind of stuff. That, And I, I never kind of thought about what crochet is. It is literally a very repetitive, very soothing action of constantly knotting wool with a hook. And so the second that they said this to me, I was like, oh, my adore, like, of course, of course, it's me stimming. Like, of course, that's my autistic stim is me sitting in class. And, and that's why it reduces my sensory overload and my anxiety and my stress so much and why I'm so much more able to, like, sit and cope and concentrate and not feel like I'm constantly distressed or dissociating. I write songs. I really enjoy it. Um, and I have my own website as well. I started my website originally back in, I think, 2017 when I was in college as kind of just like an online diary. But it subsequently then kind of turned more into, like, if I need to process or work through something, that I think it's going to be useful for me to look back on or it's going to be useful for maybe someone else who randomly stumbles across this. I don't think anyone ever has, but you never know. And yeah, I'm also... I'm just looking around my room and i'm suddenly like i've got lots of plants in my room so i'm also a bit of a plant parent and i like collecting plants and i've watched them grow from like little tiny like leaves of their succulents or you know a tiny like three inch long stick that i stuck in some rooting solution and then shoved in a pot and went so i think that's kind of mostly and also just the obvious one of being very honest with people around me if i'm having a bad day and i think Communication is also, yeah, like probably my number one recommendation for anyone who might be like struggling as scary as it seems. And it was terrifying when I started because it's, it's given them a much better idea as to like the kind of support that I need and also how to recognize when I'm okay versus distressed. Like if you come across me in a panic attack, like don't touch me, like sit next to me. That's fine. Just do, do not touch me. And I think being able to be very specific with kind of my own needs has been incredibly beneficial for everyone because it's meant that if something does go wrong we don't end up making it worse by trying to like help someone if that makes sense
0: I'm glad to learn that you have an inner support system in yourself and you have stayed so strong well I was a child abuse survivor so I was kind of forced to find my own set of coping strategies when I was very little. I drew funny pictures or write fictions about what I dreamed of the night before. Me, me running away from different monsters in various strange settings. Like a crowded supermarket. The schools I used to go to but never visit after I graduated. Why do I do that to survive, I'm not sure, but I guess these scenarios reflect the pain I used to keep to myself and hide away from everyone. Is that helpful? I hope so. I still get cold feet when I meet new monsters. So I was wondering, Beth, do you have any turning point in your life? After which you
2: feel a lot braver. Turning points. Well, I think the big turning... Well, there, there were two. No, three. Three turning points. Um, the first turning point that I kind of had was getting out of my first... When I say stuff like this, I'm like, oh my god. I've, I've been in two emotionally abusive, manipulative relationships with two separate tutors at two separate institutions. The first one being at my college um the tutor in question was called sarah i will not name her surname but i'm very open about what this woman did to me um, and the first turning point for me was realizing that i could say no to her and i wasn't gonna die and i just i put my foot down one day and i was like no i'm not doing this i'm not gonna be your guinea pig i'm not gonna you did nothing to help me you all watched as you knew that i was suicidal and that i was self-harming and that i had like issues with food and you stood over there and you watched. You would walk past me when I was, like, bawling my eyes out in a corridor and do nothing. And I cut her off and I was like, I'm, I'm not staying in contact with you. I'm not letting you have any more power over me. I'm, I'm done. Like, I'm moving to London, so I've physically got distance from you. And then my second turning point, when I realised that I really didn't want to kind of continue down the road that I was going down because it would end up with me being physically dead and buried in the ground was when I was in hospital um for three or four days, um an extended period of time after my suicide attempts. I was miserable. It was the middle of COVID. So I had no contact. I couldn't speak to my family. I couldn't speak to any of my friends. I ended up losing um all three of the friends that I was living with at the time. Um They were my only friends at that time um and so i was completely heartbroken that they had left me and that my very limited support system that i had in london had basically been wiped completely clean and i i was i remember kind of lying in the hospital beds and listening to like the sounds of the machines beeping and the nurses and like seeing everyone else in this ward that i was in and being like i feel miserable i was on like medications that were making me super sick super nauseous like didn't want to eat was like not happy and i just vividly remembered sitting there being like i'm so bored and i'm in so much emotional pain i was like i never ever want to come back to this place ever again i don't care what it takes i am going to get myself better i do not want to not only put myself through this emotional pain again but i don't want my dad and my siblings to ever have to see me in this situation again because it nearly destroyed my family um and it i don't know what it was but it was like something kind of flicked in my head and i was like i can get better i i I just knew that it was going to be okay i i genuinely can't explain what it was that happened um but i moved back to wales i put myself in therapy i stopped self-harming i've had moments here and there where it's been iffy with that but we like i i've i've just known that like it's going to be okay and that even when things got really incredibly tough it's because like i i'd survived suicide attempts and like that's as low as you can get there is no lower than that um and then i think the biggest turning point for me where i actually realized that this this mantra that i'd had in my head around like it's okay you do are enough you're gonna find people you're gonna be okay you're gonna have a future eventually came true was when at the start of this year actually when I was in a really low place because of the court case that I was going through and I lost another friend as a result of that and I suddenly I looked around me and I was like I've got friends like i have been told my entire life by everyone that I knew that I Sucked at relationships and that I sucked at friendships and that, like, I scared people off. And I remember looking around a classroom that I was sat in the back of and being like, that person's my friend and they're my friend. And that one's also someone that I get on well with. And we're going out for coffee later and looking around the room and being like, oh my God, I've got a group of at least 10 people who are solidly standing by my side and being like, we unconditionally love and support you and just. It was like I wanted to go back in time and give sixteen-year-old me a massive hug and be like, "You know what? You were gonna go through some incredibly tough times, but like, look at where we are now. Look at all of these amazing people that we've got and all of the things that we've overcome. And we know what we want to do and we know what we are worse. And since that moment, I just I feel like I've I haven't stopped worrying. I still worry a lot, but the things that I've worried about have gone from being. Oh, I worry that someone's going to run away or someone's going to leave me. Or, oh my God, did I talk too much to that tutor when I was like, when they found me and I was stressed and I was slightly dissociated to how long are we going to stay in contact? Or, oh, look, I found something really good and fun and geeky that I'm going to send to this tutor because I know that they're like this. And it's changed to like smaller things rather than worrying about the longevity of something.
1: Right. So, um... You mentioned your experience in the hospital after your suicide attempt. Is that the experience inspired you to found uh, Creative Comfort?
2: Hmm. It wasn't actually. It was part of the reason. Um, Creative Comfort was formed... I think it was the start of 2022. Um, So my organisation, Creative Comfort, um, specialises in creating interactive, digital or in-person storytelling interventions. And it was because my colleague Molly and I had been doing a lot of different arts and health projects and kind of realised that what we were really interested in, which is um, like very immersive storytelling-based kind of interventions for improving people's well-being that were led by what this particular participant was interested in. Like we very firmly believe that it's not a one size fits all model. Like that's not gonna work. We want everyone to kind of have their own time and space to be able to explore. But it's very much driven out of the desire from both my own lived experience and some of Molly's own lived experiences that we never want someone to feel bored and miserable and alone in a hospital. Like no one should be forced to sit in a bed with no no human interaction. So we did one during I think it was a COVID lockdown. I can't remember which one. There were so many. Um, where we created a an immersive online we created it on a website called Twine, which kind of, um, if anyone listening is interested in exploring this, Google twinery.org. And there's like a little a little website that someone has created that allows you to program your own. Um, interactive story like people have used it to make escape rooms or um, games of some description but Molly and I used it to create a very immersive nature-based exploration adventure thing hence the name adventure uh, where people could kind of go through and choose a location that they wanted to take an adventure in so like a forest or a beach or a city or places like that and then they would be able to follow a story through it listening to audio of a story that either we were telling or we're hoping in the future it will be a story that they have told us that we then go back and we find pictures and images and videos that are relevant to their story.
1: Yeah I think embodied experience um, is really important for people to learn things. Right.
0: astonishing that you have been an activist for inclusiveness while still keeping up with good academic records could you tell us about how have you been managing the amounts of
2: your academic work at UCL um i think i'm still trying to figure it out um i might not necessarily have like a solid answer to this um cuz it changed depending on the term and how busy it was one of the first assessments that we had called a rapid evidence review which is like a really weird literature review and i got so stressed about it like was breaking down crying like and this kind of happened during christmas time as well when my family came down with covid so i was then facing a really incredibly stressful period uni is no longer like on because it's christmas holidays yeah had a breakdown and at about midnight messaged my tutor on boxing day and basically went oh my god i'm gonna fail this assessment i just like word dumped at them they got back like a couple days later and just were like why did you not ask for help sooner like we're here we're not gonna bite you type thing um and so i came up with a list of questions and i think because My tutors didn't lash out and call me stupid for needing to ask for help. But I mean, like, why would they, for starters? Um, I think because they didn't do that, they, again, kind of created a space where I felt like I I, I lost that fear a little bit. I just basically was like, okay, I need help with this. I need help with that. I've now become that student who most, because I ask so many questions and I've the answers and so I've somehow become like a, an additional tutor on this course that like if you need an answer to something in relation to an assessment go and ask Beth because not only will she get back quicker than the tutors she'll also possibly explain it to us slightly better because she understands it from a student point of view rather than using academic but yeah mostly just being stupidly honest with everyone I've I've refused as of late to let my anxiety dictate what I can and can't do. I've made mistakes and I've messed up unintentionally. Um but I think yeah, having been honest and just admitted to myself that like I am going to need extra support like I'm a disabled student I don't have a normal experience of the world but I will need to ask more questions that doesn't mean that I'm I'm stupid or I'm just not getting something it just means I need something explained to me in a slightly different way with slightly different languages or different examples.
1: Yeah I can definitely relate to you because as a international student who doesn't really speak English as my first language There are just so many academic terms and, you know, the use of language that sometimes it just doesn't make sense to me. It's not that you're less intelligent or something, but you just need to find like another kind of expression to really understand.
2: Yeah. It took me far too long to admit that I needed that as well. Um, But I'm really glad that I have because I feel like I'm doing a lot better with the whole academic stuff that so, I even was when I was at BA level, like I think I've I've learned to just fully embrace the fact that I'm just a massive nerd and that that's fine because I'm aware there's like a lot of stigma attached to being a nerd and being a geek, you know, all of the stereotypical representations of what that is um, in the media, I think I'd always felt like I needed to hide the fact that I I love to research and I work really hard on things and I, I'd always felt like I needed to be ashamed of that because, like, I didn't really fit the category of, like, what a nerd is in the media. Like, it's taken me 21 and a half years. I'm 22 now. So it's taken most of my life to get to a point where I'm like, hey, I'm going to embrace this and I'm just going to go full whack out massive nerd and, like, not be ashamed of it anymore. Because I spent most of my life not knowing that I was autistic. No, I don't think I'd ever really sort of sat and thought about the stigma, it was only when I... I'm i self-diagnosed. I've obviously become more aware of the stigma attached to being autistic and having different ways and different needs of, like, you know, self-expression and conversation and all of that as I've kind of grown more aware of, like, the expectations that people have for people within society um, and started looking. I did a, a massive nearly 7,000 word, essay on the media's obsession with unhealthy and dangerous representations of mental health and neurodiversity. Yeah, I'd obviously kind of, I learned about the stigma through that and also the impact that the media and society has on people. But I've also started experiencing it myself, especially on the Tube and in London. And this is something I find really amusing, because I used to get cackled quite a lot. I don't like it. It's not something that I I vibe with that makes me feel really uncomfortable and really unsafe. But the second that I wear something that says that I'm autistic, it's like I suddenly am repellent to everyone in the universe in the street. And they're all like, no, we're not even going to make eye contact with you. We're going to ignore you. It's like they think autism is like something that I'm going to pass on to them. And it's like, but I've also noticed around the language a lot, even within the arts and health area that i work in so many people say that someone has autism and i'm like we don't we don't have autism because that implies that it's something that can be cured or something that we don't want something that could potentially go away my autism has been with me since i was born and it is never going to go away it is an inherent part of my identity and it's along the same lines with saying with someone saying oh you have autism no. And they do this even when they say that I am autistic. I think people not understanding why identity first language is valid and is needed. Because like if you say I my autism is like the thing that is more important than me as a person, it implies that you're like I'm not enough as I am. And it's also very dehumanizing because I'm I'm more than the things that I struggle with.
1: Yeah, I think this pretty much like being gay is the same like as being autistic. It's, it's a part of me. It's not something that can be removed. Or... Okay, so last question. Um, Baz, what advice would you give to students who are facing similar challenges as to you in navigating their academic journey at UCL or generally in higher education?
2: Advice. So I think me the biggest piece of advice that i could give to anyone and this is advice that i would have wanted to have been given myself when i was younger is i think as i've been saying the entire podcast is be honest find someone that you trust it doesn't necessarily have to be a family member it could be a tutor or a friend if you're going through like a tough time like just reach out and and be honest about it because I learned the hard way that in the long run, hiding things and pretending like you're okay doesn't make it all go away. It doesn't make it better. It doesn't make it easier to deal with. It makes it worse. it. And I think being able to start a conversation with someone and be like, look, I'm struggling. You don't even necessarily need to give them all of the details. Just be like, I'm struggling. I need some extra support. Let them help you like don't ever feel like you don't deserve help and you don't deserve someone to kind of sit and listen to you and support you because you do and I think if there are things that bring you joy in your life that you can do in class to reduce your own mental health conditions like whatever that is do that and I think I can say this across UCL like so many tutors that I have spoken to across lots of different courses have been so understanding about the different learning needs and have wanted to make a space for students you know they're able to learn comfortably in a way that suits them so don't be afraid to take that into your own hands you deserve help and you deserve support and if you don't ask for it then unfortunately you're probably not gonna get it so yeah i think that's my biggest piece of advice
1: <laughs> sort of practical sometimes it's just necessary for you to take the first step
2: yeah this shouldn't necessarily always be on the student to take the first step but um, yeah but
1: under this I current think, context yeah yeah thank you Beth <laughs>
2: So it's fine thank you that was really lovely
1: and there you have it the end of Beth's all inspiring chapter in Access Granted She reminds us that, through embracing our unique selves, we can shatter barriers and forge new paths.
0: Her advocacy for accessibility, mental health, and neurodiversity is a beacon of hope for a more inclusive future at UCL and beyond.
1: Thank you for listening to our very first episode of Access Granted. Hope you enjoyed. Stay tuned for more empowering episodes as the stories of UCL's most inspiring students are far from over.
0: As we sign off, keep embracing diversity, and celebrating the uniqueness that makes each one of us shine.
1: Thank you for being a part of Access Granted, where together, we make a difference. If you got any questions or would like to be our next guest, please don't hesitate to reach out to us through social media or via email. Show notes are available on our website. Now let's enjoy the rest of Beth's wonderful song, Run,
3: and see you around
1: next
0: time.